it's funny because when I started in this industry, I had to convince people that consumer psychology was relevant to product design. I literally had to tell people, no, Facebook and Instagram, and WhatsApp and Slack and Snapchat, they didn't just get lucky, okay? They know what makes you click and what makes you tick better than you understand yourself. So steal their secrets. When I started at Google in 2006, it felt like jumping 10 years into the future, which is why the Startup Podcast is delighted to be partnered with Google Cloud. Your startup can live in the future too with Google's clean, AI-forward cloud platform. Their startup programs are the best in the business. Get up to $200,000 worth of credits alongside support and training from startup experts. Go to google slash TSP, that's G-O-O dot G-L-E slash TSP for the startup podcast to learn more and access all the best offers. You're listening to The Startup Podcast, a show focused on helping you build, run, and invest in Silicon Valley-style startups. Whether you're an investor, founder, or operator in a startup, you'll gain insights on the principles that power high-growth disruption the way Facebook, Google, and Uber do it. The conversation starts now. Hey, I'm Yaniv. And in this episode, we have a special guest on the pod. Nira Eyal is an expert in behavioral design and habit formation and author of two best-selling books, Hooked and Indistractable. Nira's clearly communicated insights have helped inspire and power products that leverage habit formation to drive sustained growth and customer retention. And now, he's joining me to discuss how you can use the Hooked model to strengthen your product and organization. Nira, welcome to the Startup Podcast. Thanks. Great to be here. So. You describe your work as being at the intersection of psychology, technology, and business. Can you tell us a little bit more about how you actually came to do the sort of work that you do? Sure. So at my last company, I was at the intersection of gaming and advertising, and these two industries are focused on changing behavior, right? Advertisers don't spend all that money for their health. They spend it because it influences behavior to make purchasing decisions. And video games are designed to keep people engaged. And so these were my clients, my customers. And so I had this front row seat into how companies change user behavior. And this was also the time when a lot of the Silicon Valley tech giants were hitting their stride. This was around 2012 or so. I wanted to learn how they did what they did, how these customers and clients that I had, as well as these tech giants, how they were so good at changing consumer behavior. And when my last company was acquired, I had some time on my hands and I wanted to start another company. And I knew that it would be something in the habit field. I could see even back then that as the interface was shrinking, as we went from desktops to laptops to mobile devices to wearable devices, and now with auditory devices like the Amazon Echo, there is no screen. The screen has disappeared completely, which means as the screen interface shrank, habits would become increasingly important, right? If you make an app and that is not on someone's home screen, if they have to flip three or four screens to find your app and they don't remember to use it out of habit, you're dead. You might as well not even exist. And so you have to get people to come back on their own through what's called unprompted user engagement. If people use their product because they feel like they have to versus they want to, you're sunk. And so it's very, very important. Imagine what a company could do if you didn't rely on spammy advertising, if you didn't rely on annoying messages or very expensive marketing 
to bring people back, what if people came back to your product or service on their own? And so I was fascinated by that question and I looked for a book on how to do it, right? I looked for where is a guide to how to build habit forming products and I didn't find such a book. So I started interviewing my colleagues, my clients, my friends in the Valley at the time. I'd spent a lot of time at the Stanford library researching, you know, the consumer psychology of habit formation. And I started writing this blog about what I was learning and developing this model that today is called the hook model. And then I got invited by a former professor of mine at the Stanford Graduate School of Business to teach a class. And through that class, teaching there for several years, then later I moved over to the design school at Stanford. And it was through that process that I codified what I think is this common pattern that we see in all sorts of habit-forming products. And since the book was first published back in 2014, it's been used in every conceivable industry from healthcare to financial services to education. Any product that needs people to come back on their own that requires repeat customer engagement can utilize the hook model, whether it's online or offline, consumer web, enterprise, doesn't matter. As long as there's repeat engagement, you can build a habit. So for folks listening, I strongly recommend reading Nira's book, Hooked. It's a great, easy read. It sets things out very clearly. And I don't want to spend too much time going into the basics, but I thought maybe we could speed run the absolute core of your book, maybe going through... BJ Fogg's model of behavior and then the hooked model that you've built on top of it based on those observations that you were just talking about. Sure, sure. So I'll give you the very quick fly through of what the hook model looks like. So the hook model has four basic steps. It starts with a trigger. There are two kinds of triggers. External triggers are the pings, the dings, the rings, anything in our outside environment that leads us to action. We'll get back to the other type of trigger in just a minute. Hold with me. The second step of the hook model is the action phase. And this is defined as the simplest behavior done in anticipation of a reward. The simplest thing the user can do to get relief from a psychological itch. Open an app, scroll a feed, push a play button. The very simplest thing the user can do to get relief. The third step of the hook model is the variable reward phase. And so this is where the user gets what they came for. But one of the key lessons and one of the innovations I think I bring to the field is that it's not good enough to just give people what they want. There has to be an element of variability, an element of mystery, a bit of the unknown, what we call an intermittent reinforcement. There are three types of these variable rewards, what I call rewards of the tribe, rewards of the hunt, and rewards of the self. Every habit-forming product needs to have at least one or more of these three types of variable rewards. The most habit-forming products have all three, <laughs> but those are pretty rare. Then finally, the last step of the hook model is called the investment phase. And this is really something that's different from the hook model from a habit that you might read about a personal habit. Personal habits just have three steps, right? It's the trigger, the action, the reward. What's missing for a product perspective is investment. And this is something that my work kind of brings to the field is that the user has to invest in the product to make it better with use. A habit forming product doesn't depreciate, right? Your car, your clothing, your couch, these things lose value with use. Habit-forming products are characterized by the fact that they appreciate with use. They get better and better the more they're used because of what I call stored value. The more effort we put into the product, the more data, content, reputation, skill acquisition, the more we use it, the better the product becomes. That's a real difference between habit-forming products and just any old products that you use once or twice. So that through successive cycles through these hooks, eventually you don't need the external triggers at all. Remember we talked about those external triggers in the first place, those pings, dings, and rings? Those are the training wheels. Eventually, the way you know a habit has been formed is that the user does not need those external triggers at all. They rely upon the internal triggers. And this is very important. An internal trigger is an uncomfortable emotional state that we seek to escape. 
So all products, all products, everything you do is motivated by a desire to escape discomfort, okay? Boredom, loneliness, fatigue, uncertainty, anxiety. A habit-forming product attaches its use to an uncomfortable emotional state. And so over time, we use these products not because of an external trigger, but because of an internal trigger, because of how we feel. And when you can attach a feeling to your product's use, this is how you truly solve people's problems, right? You attach to some kind of emotional discomfort so that the first-to-mind solution is your product or service as opposed to your competitor. Yeah, it's funny. I was thinking about this on a very basic level about flossing my teeth as a habit that I've formed. It took me a long time. Like all my adult life, I used to get told off by the dentist for not flossing enough. And at some point I managed to really set an alarm, made sure I flossed every night and it became a habit. But the really interesting thing was a couple of weeks ago, I'd had a late night. I was really tired. I thought, you know what? I'm just going to go to bed. I'm not going to worry about flossing. And I went to bed and I felt this intense discomfort that I'd missed this aspect of my habit. So much so that I actually got out of bed again and flossed. And so I guess that's your point. You know, the trigger was entirely internal and in a sense, nearly against my own executive decision of what to do that night. The habit was more powerful than that. And I think what you're talking about is a generalized model, as you say, about how you can build that into all sorts of products to allow people to form those habits. So in the book, you talk about quite a few different products and how they use the hooked model. But you've mentioned, you know, since it's been published, it's been a very successful book and a lot of products and startups have taken inspiration from it. So I was wondering if you had some favorite stories post-publication of some products that have really leveraged the hooked model explicitly to help drive their growth and create habit formation. Sure. So I get emails every day from companies that have used the hook model for good to build these healthy habits in users' lives. One company that I was really impressed by so much so that it made the second edition, we published a second edition of the book that included an extra case study. There are many case studies in the book, but the new case study is around a company called Fitbod. And Fitbod is a company that I found out about after I had written an article because I was so frustrated with the state of the fitness industry and how bad many fitness apps are out there. In fact, the name of the article that I published was Why Your Fitness App is Making You Fat, because none of them I thought were doing a very good job at actually helping people lose weight. And so a few weeks after I published this article, a friend of mine said, hey, you got to check out this app. I think, I think they're doing a really good job of what you preach. And so I opened up this app called Fitbod, and I just started using it, and I immediately saw that it had fixed the things that I hated about all the other fitness apps out there. Somehow Fitbod had figured out. And so I went to the little customer service tab, and I found how to email the company, and I sent them an email. And I said, hey, have you by chance read my book, Hooked? And within 30 seconds, the CEO of the company reached out to me and said, yes, we actually used your book in the design of the product. <laughs> and I have to tell you, I've used this product for years now. I use it every day. I just used it yesterday when I went to the gym. And today I'm in the best shape of my life. I give a lot of credit to this app that has gotten me in the habit of knowing what to do when I get to the gym. And by the way, the company's doing incredibly well. They show me their financials from time to time and they're absolutely killing it. I think when we're talking about products, the most obvious and direct case studies are in a sense, you could call them pure consumer products, whether they are social networks, sharing apps fitness apps and so on. It's a piece of software that you as a consumer interact with. And I think the application of the hooked model to applications like that is reasonably straightforward. But when you talk about other types of products that are maybe less within that mold, whether you're in B2B, enterprise, e-commerce, services, and so on, what are some of the ways where 
this model is still applicable and where founders, no matter what the type of product they are creating or what the type of business they're creating, have something to learn from behavioral design and the hooked model. So the line of demarcation is not enterprise or consumer web or even offline or online. The line of demarcation is frequent or infrequent. So if your product is not used with sufficient frequency, and what we find is that the sufficient frequency needs to be about a week's time or less. If your customer does not use your product within a week's time or less, very difficult to form a habit. Not impossible. There are some exceptions that don't make the rule. But by and large, if the user doesn't interact with the product, you really don't need the hook model. You might take some principles from behavioral design. You can use these tactics piecemeal. It's just that if you are going to build a habit, you need all four. So it's not that every product needs to be habit forming. It's that every product that needs to be habit forming has to have a hook. Many products you don't need to build a habit for. In fact, it would be impossible to build a habit for. Think about, for example, car insurance, okay? You don't use car insurance. You buy it and you don't use it unless, God forbid, you get in an accident, then you use the car insurance. But that's not something you need to necessarily use all the time. Think about cybersecurity software, okay? You sell it into an organization. They install it, but nobody uses it unless, you know, something bad happens. Those are sales-driven organizations. When you think about product-led growth, it used to be that to sell software into the enterprise, you went to some committee or maybe a certain C-level executive and you convinced them to buy the software and then they forced everybody in the organization to use it. Those days are gone, if not soon to be dead, because now that's not how software is bought, especially now that we have such a labor crunch. I get stories from people all the time that tell me, you really need to help me because people are quitting my company because of the crappy software we make them use. Top level talent will just not put up with bad software that you make them fill out to fill out your stupid forms or your HR compliance or whatever crappy interface you're forcing them to interact with. People will literally stop working with a company because of crappy, hard-to-use software. So if you look at over the past decade or so, the way that enterprise companies have really evolved through the consumerization of IT is that it's not bought top-down. It's not sales-driven. It's product-led, meaning it's the frontline users who start using the software, and then it percolates up the organization. So think about Slack, okay? People started using Slack. You know, the front line started using Slack, an enterprise SaaS product. And then so many people were using it that somebody, you know, sent a memo to the boss and said, boss, pay this bill. Everybody's using it. So we need it. You think about Salesforce, GitHub, Stack Overflow. I mean, many of these enterprise level products, I would say most SaaS products, if you can't get people to use the product out of habit, they're going to churn. If you talk to any product leader at a SaaS company, their number one problem, the thing that keeps them up at night, the thing that gives them the cold sweats and wakes them up in the middle of the night with nightmares is churn. That's the biggest problem. Because why? Because you can always buy growth. You go raise a bunch of money from the VCs, they back up the money truck, and you give that money to advertisers, right? So you give it to platforms like Google, and you throw parties, and you run television commercials. I don't care. It doesn't matter what you do. People will happily sell you customers one way or the other, right? They can sell you leads. You can always buy that. You can't buy engagement. Engagement, retention, that has to be built into the product. And so that's why I always say you have to nail engagement before growth, because if you don't, you have what's called a leaky bucket. And I see this all the time. I get calls and emails from VCs all the time who say, hey, we invested a bunch of money in this company. It looked like it was growing and then nobody stuck around. We call that a leaky bucket. So they call me. I'm the plumber. I stop up the leaks by analyzing why these companies are not able to retain their users because they're not building habits. And so that's why it's incredibly important for enterprise products, particularly SaaS products, 
to make sure that their users form habits with their product. I think this is where it gets really interesting. I'm curious as to your thoughts about how what you're talking about with habit formation interacts with perhaps some other common discussions, especially at early stage startups like product market fit, right? You talk about a leaky bucket and often when an investor or whoever sees a product with poor retention, they'll say, oh, you don't have product market fit. So I'm curious as to your thoughts as to whether hooked model, habit formation, and product market fit are different lenses on the same problem versus actually different diagnoses of what the underlying issue is. So product market fit is an aspiration. It's not a methodology. There's no framework for knowing if you have product market fit. I know a few people had this metric of, well, if 20% of your customers scream at you, if you say you're going to take it away, well, then you found product market fit. I've never met anybody who says, oh, here's the product market fit test. It's kind of this squishy metric. And of course, there's no, how do you fix that? <laughs> right? Like fix my product market fit. Well, okay. How do I do that? What's the model? What's the steps? What's the framework? You know, we'll build it better. Okay. How? <laughs> so. I would say that the hook model is the how. You ask yourself these five fundamental questions. Number one, what's the internal trigger that your product is addressing? What's that emotional itch? Not the functional need. What's the emotional psychological itch that your product is addressing on a frequent enough basis to form a habit? That's question number one. Question number two, what's the external trigger that prompts users to action? Question number three, is the action simple enough to lead the user to a reward and how can it be made simpler? Four, what is the variable reward? Number five, What's the investment that the user makes to increase the product's value with use? And so that's how you diagnose, number one, what are the problems with my product, right? If I'm not getting the kind of user retention I'm looking for, why? And then after you've diagnosed the problem, now you know what to do with it. Because if you say, you know what? The variable reward is not very rewarding. We need to fix that. Or we're not asking for the right investment or the action is too difficult, or maybe we haven't catered to the right internal trigger. Once you diagnose the problem, now you know where to focus your product efforts. Every product team I've ever worked with has a backlog of tons of great ideas, right? The CEO says they want that. The investors say they want this. The customers say they want that. How do you prioritize? How do you prioritize, right? They're just a bunch of good ideas and nobody has enough time to test everything all at once. That requires time, money, and effort. So the way you prioritize is by figuring out first, where is it deficient? Where is your hook model lacking? And then you create features to fix that problem area. Because if you don't have all four of these steps of the hook model, trigger action reward investment, you will not build a habit. The Startup Podcast is brought to you by Google Cloud. We use Google Cloud at Circular, and I'm happy recommending it as the best cloud platform for your startup too. Go to goo.gle slash TSP for the Startup Podcast to learn more and access all the best offers. I think one of the challenges that people who are really interested in improving their craft around product, around growth and building a startup is that there are all of these frameworks and they're all really fascinating and useful, but sometimes it can be an overwhelm. Like how do all of these things connect with each other? We had Casey Winters on the show a while ago. He's one of the growth guys and growth folks talk about growth loops and they talk about user activation and especially activation. It sounds like there's something very much in common here with the hook model, which is it comes down to making that distinction between utility and engagement. Coming back to my very simple example of flossing my teeth, like the utility is unquestionable. Obviously, flossing your teeth is scientifically validated to increase your oral hygiene, but I'm not an activated user until the habit is formed. Once the habit is formed, I'm sticking around. I'm buying more floss. I'm not super familiar with the idea of activation. It sounds like it's something that could fit hand in glove with the hook model. I think the best indicator of utility is engagement. 
If someone finds utility in your product, they'll keep using it. If it doesn't provide utility, they won't keep using it. That's the best way. I mean, short of qualitative research where we're asking people, hey, what do you think of the product? And the problem with that, of course, is that people lie. Not that they mean to lie, but when you show somebody a product and say, hey, what do you think about my product? If it's face-to-face, if it's a qualitative type of assessment, they're going to tell you what you want to hear. If you ask them in some stupid survey you send them, well, only the angry ones are going to reply, right? <laughs> like We know how hard it is to get accurate feedback in terms of a product like here, here's a $20 gift card. Well, you know, you're not going to get really accurate feedback. The best feedback is passive feedback is the kind of feedback that someone is giving you based on their behavioral usage patterns. If I'm using the product six times a day, every day, well, that's a pretty useful product to me, right? It shows you my implied perception of the product. You don't have to ask me, do I like it? You see, I like it because I keep using it. So I think that designing for those habits and then measuring, you know, I think there's a big problem, I think, in how we look at product metrics. Like there's a lot of bad metrics out there like Dow over Mal people like to use. I think that's a terrible metric. With a metric I like to look at is the percentage of habituated users. That's the most important number per cohort, by the way, percentage of habituated users per cohort. So what you're doing is essentially you're going to ask yourself, what percentage of our users are currently habituated? How do you define that? It's up to you. Some products are the kind of product you might use once a week. Other products are the kind of products you might use once an hour. You have to ask yourself what level of frequency for your specific product would indicate that someone is using it habitually. Once a day, two times a day, twice a week, doesn't matter. You define that number and hold that number constant. Then you look at your data and you can use all kinds of tools. I happen to be affiliated with Amplitude. I love their product. We're customers of Amplitude at Circular at my startup. It's a fantastic tool. Oh, okay. You know them well. Absolutely. Fantastic. I'm a product evangelist for them. I love the product. So essentially what you're going to do you're going to say, okay, what percentage of our user base uses the product with that level of frequency? It was like 2%, 10%, 20%, whatever that number is. And then you're going to look at the hook model and say, okay, let's come up with some hypotheses for how we can make the product better. Do we have the right triggers? Can we make the action easier? Do we have good variable rewards? Can we layer on other variable rewards? Do we have the right investment to increase the product's value with use? Make some changes to the product and then compare cohort A to cohort B and see, did the percentage of habituated users go up or did they go down? And if, of course, they went up, you keep the feature. If they went down, you toss out the feature. And so that's this iterative process that we have to go through. And Dow over Mal will never put you on the right path because it's just too dirty of a metric. It doesn't account for growth, right? It doesn't account for the latest users. So you have to separate them by cohort, ones that were exposed to the feature and those who were not exposed to the feature. And that's how over time we make the product stickier. Just for our listeners, Dow over Mal, that stands for daily active users over monthly active users. So it's a common ratio that's used to sort of see how engaged people are. But as you say, Nira, it's a very crude metric. And what does it even mean to be active, I think, is a tough question. So if it is not about Dow or Mao, what does an habituation metric look like? So if you keep that North Star metric of percentage of habituated users, you keep that constant. So again, you define what that means for your company. You gut test how often you would expect people to use it. So let's say it's a social media product, okay? That's probably something that people use maybe two or three times a week. It doesn't really matter. Like it's not important that you accurately assess that, right? Like it's a guess, but the point is you keep it constant. Let's say it's a SaaS product. Well, a SaaS product, you're probably going to use five days a week, right? Because that's how many times you go to work. (laughs) So presumably, again, it's contextually specific based on the kind of product you're making. You don't need to be super accurate because you just need to define the level of usage that would likely indicate a habit and then keep it constant. So percentage of the users in cohort A that use the product five days a week compared to the percentage of users who use it five days a week in cohort B after you've made that change in the feature set. 
That's really good advice. And I guess another thing that occurs to me is that definition of what is the behavior or the activity that you're actually measuring for the usage? Like, is it that they signed in? Is it that they looked at a message? Is it that they sent a message to someone else? If you're a photo sharing app, probably your habituation metric isn't just how often did you use it, but how often did you share a photo or upload a photo to the tool? So I guess that that element of product sense and that sense of what is important to us as a business. That's a really good point. It's a very good clarifying point. I would define the percentage of people who are habituated to the product as one loop through the hook. So if they open the app, but then immediately left and didn't do anything with it, that's not really a completion of the hook because there's no investment phase. It's amazing. You can't actually get through three steps of the hook model just by opening the app, right? Because you've had the trigger. The app opening is the action and the reward is the viewing of whatever information. But without investing in it, and you could actually argue that there's some apps that collect passive investment, right? That if I open the app and I see some bit of interesting information, maybe I dwell longer without actually actively doing anything. So you could actually conceive of an app measuring habituation just by opening it. But typically you want to see that critical fourth step of doing something to invest in the product so that it gets better with you. So it's the four steps of the hook model need to be completed per interaction. I think that's really powerful. One example of that is related to network effects around social networks and so on. But of course, investment doesn't have to require any social or network aspect. It can be a personal knowledge base or, like you said, a fitness app, which might have social aspects and that can make it stickier. But you could also imagine a fitness app that has a really strong usage of the hook methodology without having any social aspect. Oh, yeah. In fact, FitBod, the example I gave you earlier, doesn't have any social aspect to it whatsoever. Interesting. The investment there is that every time you log your exercise, you're loading the next trigger of what you should do next time. Hmm. You're making the product better with you. So for example, yesterday I did a leg workout. So now FitBod knows that today I should do a different body part. Mm. And it automatically tells me, here's the reps, here's the sets, here's the weight. Knowing what I did last time, it prompts me with what I should do this time. So again, the product gets better. Now I can't work out without it yeah, <laughs> because I wouldn't know what to do. And you can see that in the enterprise space as well. If based on what I did with the product last time, you're making it better this time, that's what the investment phase is all about. So it can be through data. It can be through content. It can be through reputation. It could be through skill acquisition, anything that the more I use the product, the more I can do with it. So social is just one potential aspect. Of course, if I invite a certain amount of people to the product, the product gets better. You can communicate with them. Of course, that's when they started charging you as well as after you invited that third person or whatever it is, then they started charging. But investment doesn't necessarily have to have a social element. There's other forms of investment as well. The most common is data, frankly. Another book on habits from a different angle that's very successful is James Clear's Atomic Habits. Never heard of it. <laughs> and you know, one of the things he talks about is identity, right? Where the investment goes so deep that it's less about a concrete aspect of the product getting better as much as using the product or performing that habit is part of who you are. And I think fitness is a great example of where that intersection is. I think that book talks about one of the ways you get a routine of fitness is saying, I am the sort of person who goes for a run every morning or who goes to the gym every day. And it sort of feels that some of these tools can nearly piggyback on that, right? Where it's like your identity is invested in being someone who is fit and regularly conducts workouts. And the tool you use for that is FitBud. I love the approach of identity habits. The problem is from a product perspective, I haven't figured out, like, how do you do that for a SaaS product? I'm not really sure. So I think it's a nice paradigm. I profess it myself sometimes when it comes to personal habits. But for product habits, it's a little bit more tricky. I just haven't found great applications of that. I think as opposed to prioritizing identity, I would prioritize agency. 
Meaning if a user feels like they can affect outcomes, that's the guiding light, right? That fundamentally the way products change our behavior over the long term and form these habits is when we feel we are effective at doing something. It's about agency, it's about control, right? The very definition of life is something that fights entropy, according to Schopenhauer. Like this is what we do as all life forms. We have to fight entropy, we have to change things. The more easily we can give people that sense of control, that sense of agency. You know, the world is crazy, my life is upside down, work is demanding too much for me, but here's what I can control. This is why we check email 3,000 times a day. Because when you don't know what to do, check email. <laughs> email will tell you what to do. It's a terrible habit, by the way. Email is most of the time not what you should be doing with your time, but we keep going back to it again and again and again and again. And it's the mother of habit-forming technology because it uses all three types of variable rewards, right? Rewards of the tribe. Who is the email from? Is it your boss or is it spam? What's in the email? Is it good news? Is it bad news? Did you get a raise or is it a bill? And then you have rewards of the self where it's about mastery, completion, competency, control. It's about getting to this mythical place of inbox zero that I don't know anybody who's ever actually been there, but I did you know, it this week. It was fantastic. Oh, congrats. <laughs> so it's, it's all about these three types of variable rewards. And it's that sense that we get that little bit of completion. And people say dopamine squirts. I think that's a stupid metaphor. But anyway, the idea here is more so it's about that sense of autonomy, that what I am doing has a perceivable outcome that helps me control my environment. That's really the deeper psychology of what all these products help us do, at least the successful ones. So you mentioned technologies. Every new wave of technologies creates new opportunities for application of the hooked model, right? So obviously mobile notifications were an incredibly powerful tool for external triggers. Are there any newer technologies or emerging technologies that you feel have a lot of scope to create new applications of the hooked model? Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I think that these LLMs, the large language models that we see, you know, most common is what we see now with ChatGPT. Chat I don't like calling it AI. A lot of people say AI, but I actually don't think that these LLMs are AI. They're just large language models. <laughs> That's what they are. But I think what that allows us to do, or at least this type of model that we can plug into the investment phase of the hook is going to be pretty revolutionary. The fact that I think people are calling it generative AI, that what's going to happen is based on your previous behavior, everything will be customized to you. And we've talked about personalization forever in our industry of like, wouldn't it be great if things are personalized to each and every customer? We've talked about it for a long time, but I think that this very good idea that had no practical application for the vast majority of companies, suddenly with these new technologies, with generative AI, with LLMs, now becomes possible. I could see a future where if you're someone who's in their 50s or 60s, when you go to a website, it looks a certain way, right? Maybe the font's a little bigger, maybe the colors are something you're familiar with from when you started using the web. But if you're in your teens, maybe it looks completely different, right? Maybe there's a whole nother format that's customized for you on the fly based on your previous experience. So I think there's a lot of applications coming down the pipes when it comes to LLM and AI specifically because now we can do more with that investment phase. It supercharges the investment phase in some ways, some, in some pretty scary ways. I think TikTok, for example, TikTok is the first social media product that I'm scared of. I've heard it called digital crack, right? Yeah, but I'm not scared of it for the addictiveness per se. I think the addiction narrative has been kind of overblown. Everything's addictive these days. It's way overused. What I'm more concerned about is the incentives behind who's making TikTok, right? I know why Mark Zuckerberg is doing what he does. I know why they do what they do. They want to make money. I don't know what TikTok is doing, right? Like, I don't know what the CCP, Chinese Communist Party, wants to do with TikTok. So that's scary. I think that's something we should look out for. 
because they're way ahead of the game. They're using these learning models to give you more of what they think you want, but we don't know what the knobs and levers are behind the scenes to show you a little bit more of this or a little bit more of that. Not that anybody's accusing them yet of being mouthpieces for the CCP. We just don't know. Yeah, the point that you were making well is whether or not it's being done, the product offers very strong capability to manipulate the thoughts of hundreds of millions of people all over the world. At, at speed that we've never seen before, right? I mean, all media influences people, but that's also why if the Chinese Communist Party wanted to buy the New York Times, I guarantee you the U.S. government would not allow that, <laughs> right? Even though the editors of the New York Times are doing this manually, they're putting out certain types of content that influences people's thoughts. That's fine because we know it's happening. The problem is we don't know it's happening on the back end. I don't really fear that it's super addictive. I think for a small majority of people, it might be, but I don't think for the vast majority of people, it's not something they can't handle. It's how it influences you down a certain path without you even realizing that's happening. You said that these large language models and generative AI, what they're doing is they are acting as an accelerant to the investment phase. In other words, you get a higher return on any given amount of investment into the product in terms of that personalization and that utility. I know you have an entire chapter in your book, Hooked, about ethics. And then you wrote another book, Indistractable, that is nearly the yin to the hooked yang, right? Where it's like, okay, let's talk about being the other end of this, right? We are now a user and all around us are products that are trying to cause us to form habits. How do I maintain a sense of control around that? I know you've thought about this deeply and... In my view, it's a really tricky topic. And one thing that maybe scares me a little bit is when we talk about something like large language models, basically acting as a boost to these things. At a certain point, things become so addictive that they overwhelm the power of the human mind to resist them. Habit formation is a tool, right? It's a very powerful tool. And I guess in my view, it's an amoral tool, right? It can be used for good. It can be used for evil. At what point is it too powerful and how do we operate ethically and also how do we live as citizens in a world like that? Okay, so we need to do another podcast episode because... <laughs> yep, you're welcome back anytime. I appreciate it. We should do that. You know, we should do that because I know we're coming up here on time, but um, it's a super important topic and it is exactly the topic of my second book, Indistractable. And the reason I wrote Indistractable is because as someone who wrote the book on how these products get you hooked... I will tell you they're good, they're not that good. It's funny because when I started in this industry, I had to convince people that consumer psychology was relevant to product design. I literally had to tell people, no, Facebook and Instagram, WhatsApp and Slack and Snapchat, they didn't just get lucky, okay? They know what makes you click and what makes you tick better than you understand yourself. And so steal their secrets, right? That's what Hooked is about. I didn't write Hooked for them, I wrote it for you, right? I wrote it for people who want to build products that have no fear of addicting anyone. Nobody is getting addicted to enterprise SaaS products, okay? The vast majority of your listeners, I promise you, the last of their concerns is that anybody's going to get addicted. I've got a couple of folks with a pretty bad amplitude habit. Yeah, do you? They're refreshing those <laughs> dashboards like nobody's business. Yeah. <laughs> but again, here's the thing, right? Are you actually addicted to amplitude or is it you're addicted to work? Like tomorrow, if you won the lottery and you decide never to work a day in your life again, you're just going to go out and surf every day. You're going to keep checking amplitude. You're probably not. One of the things, because I've been an amplitude addict at times, and I'll tell you what, it's a variable reward. Variable reward. You hit refresh, you see what the latest metrics are, right? You don't know. Exactly. Dopamine hit. Which is wonderful for, you know, when you're in market for that kind of tool. But I would say the vast majority of companies do not need to worry about addicting anyone. The vast majority of companies need to worry that people don't care about their product, that they don't use it at all. <laughs> That's the real problem for the vast majority of people. 
But there are some companies out there that do have an ethical imperative. We can talk about this on the next episode in terms of what that ethical imperative should be. I do think that we in general in society are going through a moral panic right now. We love to blame our technologies for hijacking our brain, for stealing our attention and focus. And I think, yes, for a small percentage of the population that has an addictive disorder, you'll notice I didn't write hooked how to build addictive products. I wrote hooked how to build habit forming products because we would never want to build an addiction. An addiction is a pathology. It's a disease. But we use this terminology as if everybody's addicted. Well, bullshit. That is not true. A lot of people have a glass of wine with dinner, but they're not all alcoholics. You know, we all have sex. We're not all sex addicts, right? Why? Well, because it's not about the behavior. It's about the person and the behavior. It's about the interaction between the two. So yeah, we use social media, but we're not all addicted. But we like thinking that we're addicted. Why? Because then we don't have to do anything about it. It's not our fault. It's Mark Zuckerberg's doing it. It's TikTok. It's work. It's, you know, we can blame and point. But of course, it's our responsibility because they're not going to do anything about it, right? We're going to wait for the geniuses in government to fix this problem. Come on, give me a break. So that's what Indistractable is all about. And hopefully that's enough of a lead in so that you'll have me back and we can talk about exactly how do we reclaim control? Because look, especially as startup founders, it's really difficult to know how to control your time and attention. But look, that's all you got. That's your only input is your time and your attention. And so if you don't control your time and attention, you do not control your life. You don't control your business either. Now, that's a great insight. And we'd absolutely love to have you back. But mindful of your time right now, we'll wrap this episode up. Nera, if people want to follow you, where else can people find your thinking online? My website is nearandfar.com. Near is spelled like my first name, N-I-R and far.com. And my first book, Hooked, How to Build Habit-Forming Products, is available wherever books are sold. And my second book, Indistractable, How to Control Your Attention and Choose Your Life. Fantastic. Nereal, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the Startup Podcast. So thanks so much again for your time. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Okay, team, time to remind you again about the Startup Podcast Pact. If you are listening to this podcast and getting value from it, you are signing up to a deal. The good news is your end of the deal is really simple to keep. Make sure that you follow us and rate us in your podcast listening app and on LinkedIn. If you really want to make us happy, give us a written review on Apple Podcasts. That's the price you pay for listening to the content that you get here. And we thank you so much for your support. The Startup Podcast is proud to be partnered with Google Cloud. These folks have really pulled out all the stops to help startups. Up to 200K in compute credit over two years, technical training and business support provided by startup experts. We use Google Cloud at Circular and it's a delight. I'm happy to recommend it to anybody building a startup. It fits with our values too. Google Cloud is 100% powered by renewable energy. Go to google slash TSP, that's G-O-O dot G-L-E slash TSP for the Startup Podcast to learn more and access all the best offers.